Hello, welcome to Two Broke Nerds, two friends talking about whatever the hell they want, because what else are we going to do in a pandemic? I'm Alec Kerr, and I'm a film geek. And I'm Brian McElhenney, and I'm a music geek. This is our season finale, for what it's worth. We were going to do it at episode 20, but then we paid tribute to Chad Bozeman. But uh, you know what? I thought about it. 21 is good, because at 21, our show can legally drink. Yes. It's a milestone. <laughs> 21 is a milestone, so it works. <laughs> so we figured we would talk about what inspired us and what influenced to do what we do, because I write about film and theater and sometimes music, and you write about music, and yeah. Yeah. So my primary influence, like a lot of people that got into film criticism, was Cisco and Ebert. Sure. And I have a vivid memory of this. I had already gotten into writing reviews when I was like 14, 15 years old. But I vividly remember seeing the news that Gene Sissel died. And I called a friend up and was talking about how upset I was. And I said, I'm going to fill the void that he left behind. I'm going to replace him. Yeah. And I kind of stuck to that. Like... I studied film at Keene State, and my parents, God love them, were like, maybe you should, you know, get a degree in communication. I'm like, no, I'm going to get a degree in film critical analysis. <laughs> I, I think anyone who does any kind of criticism uh, owes a debt to Cisco and Ebert for what they did for the, the craft of criticism. For them, it was always about actually having discussions about art. And then it wasn't just about this movie sucks, don't go see it. Yeah, sometimes it was. And sometimes they would just tear a movie apart. But they would also get into like really deep analytical conversations about films. Yeah. And advocate for small films that wouldn't necessarily find an audience. Uh, I mean, hell, we wouldn't even be doing this right now if it hadn't been for Siskel and Ebert. The idea of two guys getting together and talking about art didn't really exist until those guys got together right i guess i guess the entirety of youtube owes cisco and ebert a debt <laughs> yeah and the other influence was leonard malton anybody who has any interest in film at some point has had a leonard malton film review book they, they stopped printing them a few years ago but every year he would release a new book with all of the new reviews and they weren't all written by him. He had like a whole staff, but he kind of overlooked it. And I would look through that book cover to cover and read like every capsule review. Well, not every, but if, if there was a movie I heard about, I was like, I got to check the Malton book. Yeah. I remember as a kid, my dad had copies of that and uh, we would, he would look them up and read reviews to us. Sometimes just the movies we like just to see what, his thoughts on him were a lot of times you get a laugh out of it. You know, I, I enjoyed the fact that he always gave turkeys to movies. Yeah. It wasn't like one star or no star. It was Turkey. It was a, it was a picture of a Turkey. It was great. Yeah. I think later it became bombs, but I do remember the turkeys as well. Turkey, turkey's better than bomb. Yeah. And reading the Malton book, I also kind of learned that, critics could be wrong and you slowly after reading one specific critic over and over again for a period of time you learn what their blind spots are and what their interests are because i i remember coming to the realization 
that Malton hated dark movies. Even if it was a classic, he would give it two stars because he just didn't like dark movies. And that's when I came to the realization that you don't necessarily always have to agree with a critic that you like. You just start learning what their voice is like, and that's how they can become a guide for you. Yeah. One of the weirdest things with Malton was uh, finding out that he gave Batman Forever three stars and then The Dark Knight two stars. Uh Uh-huh. Wow, dude. Which is exactly what I mean. Like he didn't like dark movies. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's really strange because I mean, I enjoy Batman Forever, but let's not kid ourselves, it's not a good movie. No. And I if I recall, that is the best reviewed Batman movie in his eyes. I think he gave three stars to Batman Begins too, but he also gave like two stars to Batman. He might have given it two and a half, and then Batman Returns was two stars, and I'm like, really? You're saying yeah. the two best Batman movies are Batman Forever and Batman Begins, which, okay, that one makes sense. But really? <laughs> Batman Forever? Yeah, yeah that, was, that was really weird. Really weird. But this is also, this is the other thing, is clearly you do it too, where we, like, obsessively memorize the ratings of these reviews. Yeah, it's fun, and it's fun to rank things, and, like, since, you know, since it's a pandemic, and I really don't have anything to do because I'm unemployed, I've gone back in Google Docs, and I haven't published it anywhere, but I've just written rankings of my favorite bands and and their albums, and I've just, any band that has, like, you know, a good 10 or so albums, I just sit there and rank them, because that's what I like to do late at night when I have nothing better to do, or I probably have better things to do, but no, I'm just gonna sit here and rank every Metallica album, because I think that's fun. (laughs) And there's value in that. Maybe someday you will publish it. Yeah, maybe. Or put out a book of, here's all my rankings of albums, if you can. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I do that with music and movies and, and all that stuff. It's enjoyable. Or maybe we're just really weird. I think we're not as weird as we think. I think there are a lot of people that do this. That, like, a few weeks ago, or a couple months ago now, my wife Ashley and I, we went through and redid our DVD collection. Not alphabetically, not chronologically, but like a video store. So we have an action section. A comedy section, a drama section. Wow! See, I've done. I've I, like my my record collection back when I had a record collection has been you know organized in multiple different ways, and eventually I just settled on alphabetical because it was getting too confusing. But at one point, I tried to do it by genre, like you like you said. But for the longest time, from my teenage years up to you know early twenties in college, my record collection was organized by favorite band so it was from my favorite band to least favorite band and then i had to change that because it just got really confusing it's like what are the merits of me liking leonard cohen more than the offspring and it doesn't even make sense because leonard cohen has nothing to do with the offspring so like how can i you know so it's like so i had to reorganize it and i settled on alphabetical because it's the easiest way to do it but then i had to deal with my own anxiety about Nirvana no longer being the first band in my record collection. And this was like a serious <laughs> thing for me. I was like really upset. Like Nirvana needs to be number one. And I thought about just putting them as number one and then everything else is alphabetical, but that doesn't make sense analytically. So, right. Yeah. It took a while to come to terms with it. Yeah. This is what people like us do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> obsess over. Yeah. I've already talked about this 
and most people who know me know this, but thing that made me become a music journalist or become interested in journalism in any form was Almost Famous, the, the film by Cameron Crowe. We've talked about it on the show, too. It was just, you know, I, I think part of it was seeing it at the right time. I was like 13, 14, so maybe a year younger than the protagonist in that film, who's basically Cameron Crowe. And I just remember seeing it, and my thought was like, well, I probably won't make any money playing music. Not very many people do, but I can do this. And I've always liked writing, and I've always... So it was like, here's a way to combine both of those, the music and, and, and writing. Yeah. And I think the, the really great thing about that film is that it shows you how to do it well. Like, the lead character in that, the, essentially the avatar for Cameron Crowe, he is passionate about music. He's not cynical. He's not jaded about it. And that comes through when he interviews people and the people respond to that. And I, I know that's how you have gone about your career is to show your love for music and to show that you care and invest and that you do all the research. And over the years, I know you've told me that you get so many responses of, wow, this was a great interview. Wow, that's a great question. And I think a lot of that goes back to Almost Famous. My goal is to always, when I try to do an interview with a musician, is to try to think. You know, even if I've never heard of this musician until this day, I try to go from it from the perspective of, okay, what would a fan want to know? What would a fan want to ask this musician? You know, and sometimes I'm off the mark, but sometimes I'm, I'm on it, too. So, <laughs> but that's kind of the, the mindset. That, that I try to bring into it. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's also what was happening in Almost Famous. He approached it as a fan. And I feel like that's what everybody who, whether you're writing about a musician or a, an actor or a filmmaker, you should try to approach it as a fan because the people that are going to be reading these articles are fans or they're at least trying to learn something about this artist. Yeah. And when you're doing newspaper journalism, it's a balance between that and then the basic stuff that you kind of have to hit. And every musician kind of has a story. And if you don't hit those beats, people are going to be very upset. So it's kind of balancing that with the new information, making sure you tell kind of a legend of this musician with the new information that's coming out. And on a good day, you can hit the right balance of that. Right. And... The few times that I've done an interview, I've always tried to come to the approach of is that these people are usually on a junket where they're just doing one call after another, after another, after another. And they're getting the exact same questions every single time. And so I try to think of something they haven't heard. Yeah. And again, on a good day, you can do that. And sometimes you miss the mark. As far as other influences, I spent a lot of my teenage years on a website called allmusic.com, which basically just catalogs tons of bands and reviews albums and gives them star ratings and stuff. One of the writers on there, Stephen Thomas Earlywine, I really enjoyed his reviews of lots of musicians. I would like to read that website and then kind of compare and contrast with other sources and be like, oh, they got that way, way wrong. And 
sometimes they, they had different insights that other people didn't have. But it was a cool kind of clearinghouse. You could basically, like, on any given day, it's like, I wonder what they think about this band. And you just kind of look it up and see. And sometimes it would be, it's like the expected star ratings and sometimes it would be like way different than anything you'd expect one of the things i had contention with with that website was their rankings for the beatles because i think basically every beatles album that got five stars despite like the nuances in the review and it was basically just like it was a little bit too much of comparing the beatles to every other band and of course if you compare the beatles to every other band yeah they're gonna have five stars for every album but kind of disingenuous in that way there's merit to looking at it based on other artists work but when you have someone like the Beatles, sometimes you kind of have to put it in perspective of the work here. Like Beatles for Sale is objectively not as good as Rubber Soul Revolver, the White Album, Sgt. Pepper's. So it, it, it objectively should not have five stars alongside those albums. It doesn't rank with those albums, just period. It does not. Magical Mystery Tour is probably their, their weakest album, or at the very least, it's their most inconsistent. It has tracks that are skippable. And I don't know if you can say that about other Beatles albums. Yeah, the thing with Magical Mystery Tour is that it's, yeah, the, the front half is the soundtrack to Magical Mystery Tour, and then the last five songs really elevate the album because it's just a collection of the singles that they had around the same time. Yeah, it's so, kind of like an Earinghouse album. Like, oh, here's some stuff we had. Yeah, and it was released the same year as Sgt. Pepper, it's not really an album, but it is like, it was like, just, we need more Beatles product here, guys, do this. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the closest thing they had to a B-Sides album. And even their B-Sides album is great. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, for sure. But going off of that, there was something that Roger Ebert said, and I kind of use it as a guiding mantra in writing reviews is that you have to look at things by what they're trying to do. Like, he would look at things based on genre. So, like, he gave Spider-Man 2 four stars out of four stars. Not because it's as good as Citizen Kane, but at the time, he thought it was the best superhero movie ever made. And so, I have to give it four stars. That doesn't mean it's as good as The Godfather. It doesn't mean it's as good as Citizen Kane. But for what it's trying to do... It's the best it can be. And I feel like a lot of times critics today forget that. We, we kind of live in a criticism culture of like hot takes. And people yeah. want to have this hot take and they want to get the clicks from their, their hot take, which is, I want to say nine times out of ten, but it's probably more than that. It, it's just garbage. It's garbage. Whatever your quote unquote hot take is, is garbage and no one needs to hear it. And you're not improving the world by putting it out there. So maybe shut up and think about it. And then... Have a, a real take, not a hot take. Right. And, you know, similarly, another thing that, that Ebert said or would do is that he would give a, a, you know, let's say a three star rating to a movie that objectively might not be very good, but he liked it. He was entertained by it. And yeah, maybe it didn't have a lot of substance, but he was entertained by it. And he said, you know what? There are movies that are trying to make a statement and trying to be something broader and deeper and that's great but sometimes you just need a fun escapist movie and you shouldn't disparage those films you should say yeah i enjoyed this movie yeah i have so many movies that are like that i know this is a bad movie 
uh, we've talked about Star Wars enough, but I'm going to bring it up again because I, I know Revenge of the Sith is a terrible, terrible movie. I still like it. I don't care. And I know where it's bad and I know where, but it's like, it, it's still, I, I enjoy it because it's bad. Yeah. You know, I enjoy the Sharknado movies. They're terrible. They're fucking awful. Yeah. But I watch them because they're ridiculous. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe not as bad, but Iron Man 2. I actually really like that movie. I know it's bad. It's, it's not great, but I enjoy it. Yeah. And there's something to be said for watching a movie because when we've talked about this, we adore Sam Rockwell in that movie. And that's half the reason I rewatched that movie is just for Sam Rockwell. And that's, sometimes that's all you need is one good performance. Yeah. I don't know if I've addressed this on the show, but I've since watched all the Hobbit movies. I only watched the first one in theaters and I'm like, fuck this shit, I'm out. But I've since watched them all. And there was a time where I was just renting them over and over from the library because I liked to put them on while I was working on my comic. And it was just noise. And every once in a while, I could look up at the screen and be like, fuck you, movie, that's stupid, you know? <laughs> And just yell at the movie. I mean, there's like enough good things in that movie to where I can enjoy it. Like I can, I can unironically enjoy Martin Freeman as Bilbo yeah. throughout all those movies. He does such a good job. And it, like, and it, it's like, it's in the middle of a bad, horrible, horrible movie. It even cuts to awful things in the middle of it. But there's like one part where, where Thorin dies and Bilbo is just, his reaction is almost enough to bring me to tears. And then, you know, you're laughing again at something really, really stupid jammed up right next to it. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about that. But yeah, that movie was so all over the place because it would have a genuinely good moment. Like, I remember almost being moved to tears at Martin Freeman's performance in that moment. And then I think it cut to that stupid love triangle thing with whoever died. And I'm like, why are you cutting to this bullshit? Right? Yeah, it's just stupid. One thing that's a non sequitur, and we might edit this out, but whatever. I, I participate on the, the forums in uh, the, the website I post my comic to, Comic Fury, and uh, one of the questions that came out was like, what is your worst idea for a movie ever? I'm like, oh boy. So, <laughs> so I, I eventually settled on a trilogy of movies set after Lord of the Rings that in its entirety is just Legolas looking for that female elf. <laughs> in The Hobbit and he looks for her for three movies and he never finds her at the end <laughs> and in a way if I actually made those movies it would like have perfect symmetry with Star Wars Yeah, you have the original trilogy that's great the prequel trilogy that's just awful filmmaking and then a sequel trilogy that goes nowhere yeah oh my god it would be hilarious if all of them are still three hours long <laughs> right? And it's just him wandering around New Zealand. Yeah. Like, hey guys. And then no, you're they can bring Tom Bombadil in for no reason. Just, hey, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> just forcing random cameos, a half hour sequence with Frodo, just having a pint in a bar because, you know, why the fuck not? <laughs> right. And occasionally clutching his, his chest or whatever because the wound is bothering him. Yeah. <laughs> just stupid shit. <laughs> something I wanted to bring up I haven't really talked that much about my influences I'll get back to that in a minute but all this has kind of had me thinking and I think it's the case in your field as well but I know in my field that there are certain musicians 
certain bands, certain albums, certain things you're expected to like as a critic. Like yep. there's these critics' darlings, and it's like it's blasphemy if you go against the mold. And I've got it like a number of these that like drive me nuts, and I can't actually stand them. There's a band called NRBQ that is like the critics' band, and everyone loves them. And I've tried to listen to them. I've tried so hard. I've interviewed a couple of the guys from this band. They're nice people, competent musicians, but that's about all they are. And whenever I listen to this band, it's like, this is boring. This is like the most boring. It is. It's critic music. It's like music designed to get critics to like it. And it's boring and awful and I can't stand it. Yeah. And we've had that discussion. Like, we're both huge fans of Beck when he doesn't do that slow, quiet bullshit. And that's the critic album. And the critics go, right over those albums and where both of us are just like can we get your next weird shit album because that's when you're good yeah exactly <laughs> trying to think of other things like that i know there's like certain critic ways of behaving that i don't subscribe to like there there's the critic thing like where you're you're reviewing a show and you just you don't react to anything and i've mm-hmm. sat in enough critic boxes or areas with critics in it to like look and after a song ends and everyone's clapping enthusiastically and it's like they don't do anything they just sit there and i'm just like even if i don't like the band i'll do like kind of a polite clap it's like come on you guys like that in a way i mean i understand the whole journalistic tenet of not wanting to influence what you're reporting on but in my mind it's even worse to just sit there and have no reaction because then you really are influencing what you're trying to report on. And it, it, you can like say to yourself, oh, I'm above the fray. I'm not going to react to this. But it's like, that makes you stand out even more. Yeah. And critics get a bad reputation. And I think part of that is because of that sort of attitude where, and I know there are a lot of critics that go into a situation and it's like, okay, Prove to me that you don't suck. And I think that is terrible. I go into every situation thinking, okay, this is going to be good. Hopefully it doesn't turn out not to be. And I think that's what you should come into anything is with hoping for the best, not hoping for the worst. Yeah, I've never liked that bit of critic culture. I remember going to see TV on the radio and they encored with a Fugazi song, and I went nuts. I, like, went into the mosh pit. I'm like, this is, this is fucking awesome. So I'm in the mosh pit with, like, my notebook and my pen, and I come <laughs> out after the song, and one of the, the other critic who was there with me was like, wow, you kind of, you went full on. I'm like, yeah, I did. That was awesome. Like, why am I going to sit here and just, like, no, that was great. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to pretend like I'm above it all. I fucking love TV on the radio, and I love Fugazi. Yeah, and that's the thing is, it's you. sometimes you have to turn off that analytical side of your brain and kind of just, whether it's a concert or a movie or a play or whatever, just kind of let it wash over you and take you on a journey. And sometimes, if something is really good, that will happen. And all of a sudden, you're not really analyzing it anymore. You're just enveloped in the moment and that's when you know you're watching something that's actually really great right one of my favorite things i I like to tell people when they're like what was the show that surprised you the most and i don't know if it necessarily surprised me but it's kind of like the thing that people wouldn't expect everyone would just kind of be like oh new cuts new kids on the block that's you know some boy band that sucks 
it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. I've like I enjoy I had a better time at that show than I did at some bands that I actually legitimately enjoy and own albums from because they put on a great show. And it was it was so clear from seeing them on stage that like they weren't just going through the motions. Like, okay, yeah, there's there's an aspect of we're back together and playing because it's gonna make money. But like they're on stage and I got a deep sense of connection with them and with the audience and with the fact that they they just were happy to be back on that stage and happy to be playing for these people that love them. There was nothing false about it. And, and that, that's the thing I, I most dislike when you get bands that are just like, you know, all right, we played this set last 40 nights in a row and we're just kind of doing it. This wasn't just doing it. There was passion there. And I, I always respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. Because... There are a lot of artists that over the years, particularly in sort of revival or comeback tours, where they're just there for the money and you can tell they're not passionate and they've forgotten that they're there for the fans. And when you have an artist that is there for the fans and is happy to be performing for their fans, that makes a world of fucking difference. Yeah. When, when you're at a show, and at least for for music, you're not you're not critiquing the music itself. It's it's a fine line, and people often confuse that. Yeah, the music has been released; it's been critiqued. What you're critiquing is a performance, and a performance can be great on shitty music, and it can fail spectacularly with great music. And in fact, it's probably easier to review a bad concert of great music than it is to review a good concert of bad music. Yeah, it, it, it times. It can be. It's, it's almost automatic. It's, it's easier to write a bad review because that's when it's like, oh boy, here we go. Yeah. It, to me, it, you know, it's harder to convey when something is like truly great. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing we should probably mention in this episode, and it kind of brings things full circle, is the influence of the movie Shattered Glass on both of us. Because after we did that episode, I really, and it was our first episode, I really thought about that movie and I realized that film really kind of gave my journalistic ethical backbone and the character, the real person, Chuck Lane, just being justifiably righteously indignant about the behavior of Stephen Glass and that it was wrong, just flat out wrong, ethically wrong. Yeah. For sure. Um, that's definitely a, a, a good kind of moral compass movie for, for journalists. Yeah. And that, and that whole story, it's just an insane story. And it's insane what Stephen Glass did. And it's insane that it went on for so long. And, uh, you know, Chuck Lane is a hero for putting a stop to that. Yeah. And I saw that at like, 21 years old 20 21 years old and i know you saw it around the same age and i think if you're seeing it at that age when you're still kind of learning your moral compass it really will have a strong impact on you yeah yeah for sure and i'm trying to think of like other things other oh well this isn't so much an influence but this is an anecdote i wanted to share I did go to grad school for journalism and I was really struggling with it. And because I do have terrible social anxiety and I, and there was an assignment and it was not to go into a publication. It was just like an assignment for the, for a class where it was go into the community 
and just talk to somebody and get their story. Anybody, any story. And it, I, I froze up. I couldn't do it. I was like, I, I have to just go talk to somebody randomly, like without any context. Like it terrified me. And like, and I finally got the nerve to talk to somebody. It was a guy in a record store. He said, no, I won't go on the record. And we were given an hour to do this. We had an hour to go into the community and find a story. And this was like after four or five minutes, I finally got the nerve. And the person that I talked to said, no, they wouldn't talk to me. And so what I wound up writing was I went to this record store and tried to talk to them and they refused to talk to me. That wound up being my article. And I talked to my advisor saying, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can be a journalist as I have a hard time talking to people. And I'm not a good hard news writer. I really suck at it. And I don't know if I can survive in this. And he had read my stuff and he's like, you know what? You are a genuinely good arts writer, and that's hard to do. You have a niche, and a lot of people don't have that. And you're lucky to have a niche, and you're going to be just fine. Yeah, that, that's great. And I had similar moments early on. I, I have to specifically shout out one professor at Keene State, Marianne Salcetti, who, in retrospect, I thought she would be the last professor in that journalism department to really support the idea that, you know, I just want to write about music. I just want to write about art and music and stuff. But she understood it and she nurtured it. Not that I always responded well to the nurturing. I, I remember we set up an independent study class that I failed and bombed hard because I just stopped. I kind of gave up for a while. <laughs> but but she was, she was, you know, instead of being like, oh, that's not real journalism, she'd be like, okay, well, like, you should check out this. You should read, you know, like Ben Fong Torres from Rolling Stone and, and all these other music writers and, and stuff like that. She pointed me in the direction of there's this strong tradition of music writers and arts writers in a world where it's like, if it's not hard news, a lot of times you get looked down on to have someone who can kind of encourage that in you. You know, there's different kinds of journalism. I had experience with that, like at at the paper where it was like, I would feel down on myself because I couldn't do what the, the hard news reporters do, but then, you know, turn around and like, the news editor is asking me for advice on feature stuff because she couldn't do it. And I, and I just toss it off like, like nothing. Right. And I should say the name of the, this advisor who, who made this huge impact on me. His name is Patrick Stoddard. And I think we are both really lucky that we had that figure in our life because we might not be where we are today if we hadn't had that sort of mentor figure to say, no, there is value in, in writing about the arts. And there is, because the arts reflect society and in a lot of ways say things about what's going on in society that you wouldn't notice otherwise unless you were paying attention to the arts. And let's face it, most artists have more interesting things to say than politicians do. Yeah. I'm not interested in anything politicians have to say. Oh, so... <laughs> So, so yeah, there, there's a there's a good personal influence. And then I mentioned music writer Ben Fong Torres. Lester Bangs, for sure, definitely introduced to him through Almost Famous, but read his work since then. And it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's music journalism as literature. And it's treated as such, and deservingly so. One of my favorite articles by him is, I, I forget the exact title, but it's basically 18 Reasons Why... Lou Reed's Metal Machine Music is the greatest album of all time. And Metal Machine Music is legendary for just being noise. Just literally just two records, 
four sides of noise that Lou Reed just put out to get out of his record contract. Uh-huh. And here's Lester Bangs writing this 18-point treatise on why it's the greatest album of all time. And it, it's hilarious and brilliant and just great. And then Hunter S. Thompson, for being Hunter S. Thompson and being quite literally insane. I don't have like tons and tons of music journalists that I read and go back to. I think my thing is... I think it's always been just the music itself. So I don't know. I think that's a, a, a big thing. And I mean, I said it earlier. I, I think what, not to toot our own horns, but I think we're better than a lot of other entertainment writers or entertainment critics because we are fans first. And I feel like a lot of times critics forget that. And they have this air of superiority and they look down their nose at everything and are ready to tear everything apart. Like they take the idea of, oh, I'm a critic. That means I have to be critical of things. And that's like, no, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean be critical. It means give a critique. Right. It's kind of the journalistic idea of being like the gatekeeper of information. And, you know, there's value to that. There's value to pointing people in the direction of, of good music, good art, good film, which is part of what I try to do as a music writer. But there's also, and I think the key thing that a lot of people lose, it's all a conversation. It's a conversation about these things that we love. And no one person is correct. If you disagree with this critic, go read five other critics that have a completely opposite opinion. Yeah, and I've said for years that I see my job as a critic and is not to say, this is good, this is bad, you're wrong, I'm right. It is to guide the conversation to say, this is what I think, what do you think, let's talk about it a little bit. And unfortunately, that has sort of disappeared and it's all just, you're wrong, I'm right, and yelling at each other instead of actually talking about it. Right, and it, get, it gets to the point where you have people saying The Last Jedi, is, it's objectively a bad movie, it's objectively the worst movie of all time. When, to quote Luke from that movie, nothing about that sentence is true. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, you can absolutely love that film, and there are people that absolutely love that film and think it's the best, or one of the best in the Star Wars saga, and then you have people that think, oh my god, it's terrible, and instead of shouting at each other, talk about it and maybe come to some sort of middle ground and be like, okay, yeah, it's not perfect, but I still like it. Or yeah, I don't really like it, but I see where you're coming from. I can see where there could be some merits. Right. And, and again, it's, it's kind of, the, it's the whole hot takes thing and everything is either the best thing in the world or objectively the worst thing of all time. And it's like, so very few things are either of those. Yeah. We should wrap this up, but I actually, and I don't know if you remember the first time you ever like sat down and wrote a review. But my first review was a sixth grade writing assignment where we were actually assigned to write a movie review. And so the first movie review I ever wrote was a goofy movie. (laughs) And I remember like doing my research and finding out that it wasn't the official like Disney animation studio. It was like this animation studio they had in France And so I like put that in my review and I was so proud of myself for finding out that detail and I got an A on it. And I feel like that was sort of the moment where I was like, oh, I I like this. I'm good at this. I don't really know. I think the earliest I can remember is probably whatever the first review I wrote for you, which I can't even remember the name of the movie. 
It was something with Owen Wilson in it. The big something, I don't know, it was something on a, like a tropical island. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The big bounce or something like that? Yeah, it was not good. No, <laughs> it wasn't. I just remember it was not good. And yeah, so I think that was the first like real legit review I wrote that went beyond just having heated conversations about art with my friends. So yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to wrap, before we wrap this up, we should share the, this anecdote. Um, so the first time we ever met was I was a sophomore in, in college and I was already the arts and entertainment editor for the school newspaper. I, I, I should not have had that position yet because I did not have social skills to be an editor and give out assignments. I was incredibly yeah. socially awkward. And here you came up to me being like, yeah, I'd like to write some reviews. And you were standoffish and socially awkward. And I was like, okay. I was like, what's your name? And like, you spelled your name out. You like probably mumbled it. You said it really quickly. And I wrote it down wrong. And so your first byline, I completely butchered your last name and you were so fucking pissed at me. <laughs> <laughs> so all I remember from that exchange was, yes, we were both extremely socially awkward. And I think I stood in front of you for a good like two minutes until you were finally like, do you want to review something? <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just I was like, so okay, bad. Uh, there's this movie. Uh, you want to review it? And you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like somehow I got a U in your name. Like I completely butchered the spelling of your name. And it's because yeah. I'm socially awkward and I've gotten better. But I think when you spelled your name, like I didn't hear it correctly. And I was like, too awkward to be like oh can you say that again and i was just like okay i got it but it was, it was amazing kind of how fast that we just took over that section oh yeah it became our section and it, like After even before we were like good friends like i remember i went and wrote uh, i wrote a couple things for you and then i tried to like branch out to another section and then a couple weeks later you were you were coming up to me and it's like can you write for me again yeah <laughs> it, it became very clear because even at like 20 years old, I was a decent judge of good writing. And most of the people that wrote for me, I was like, good God, this is terrible. And you were the only reliably good writer. So I just leaned on you really hard. And yeah. we, we basically took over the section and we were great. Uh, not to, you know, pat ourselves on the back, but like, we did get like noticed by our advisor and regularly, you know, got spotlighted and it was a good experience. It was a lot of fun, like kind of taking over this one little corner of the newspaper. Yeah, it, it was fun. And then like, obviously I was your successor and it, it was just never the same when it was the, when it wasn't the both of us. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, and one last anecdote. Um, there was one time, where for whatever reason, I don't even remember what the assignment was, but you were like way past deadline. You were like hours past deadline and you were down <laughs> at Amnesty International office, which was yeah. on like the, the, the Equinox office was on the third floor. The Amnesty International was on the second floor. And like every like hour or so I'd come down and you've talked about it numerous times. You were like legitimately scared of me because I was like, imploding like i was like angry but like, like you finished that article yet just like <laughs> printing through my teeth 
Yeah. I like, think you that wanted point, me to I, just yell at you, but I didn't. And it was like... Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, I was the copy editor of the paper. And yeah. There was only one copy editor. So, like, every editor sent me all the shitty writing that they got. And I had to try to, like, fix it. Yeah. In addition to writing what whatever articles I was writing for you that week. And so it was just like, I was, like editing these shitty articles and didn't get to sit down and actually write this thing until it was like deadline day like your deadline day not even my deadline day like the editor's deadline day yeah yeah so i was like so like i don't know if i've ever really felt like that ever again <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was pretty bad i probably made other editors feel like that i'm great at procrastinating yeah so and I know I keep saying last thing, but yeah, th that was the thing about the Equinox. And I guess it was like trial by fire because when you were a copy editor, you weren't really a traditional copy editor in the sense that you would look at the copy on the page and go through it. Like you would get the copy and sometimes it would be terrible and you'd like to completely rewrite it, which is not what a copy editor is supposed to do. You're supposed to kick it back to the writer. And sometimes we'd have the time to do that. But most of the time, it would be given to us on deadline and be so fucking unusable that we'd have to sit there and find a way to rewrite it. And yeah, it was quite the yeah. experience. It's, it's amazing that we, we put up with that shit at that paper. For like, I spent more time working on that newspaper than I did on like my other four or five other classes. Oh, yeah. Just, yeah, and it was like, why did we do this? Yeah, yeah, we spent... <laughs> hours there like i spent yeah i spent more time in the equinox offices than i spent anywhere else like if i had free time i was up there and that makes sense given what we wound up doing with our lives nobody else that well there's one other person that i worked with at the equinox well two other people i worked with at the equinox that wound up being journalists it was craig lines and john Ballou. he's still a sports writer in gardner massachusetts Everybody else, they didn't go into journalism. Yeah, it broke them. It broke their souls. <laughs> then you and I are just like, this is fucking great. We're thriving in this atmosphere. Yeah, for some reason. I, re I remember, though, it got to the point at the end where the last semester I was the arts editor and putting together that section. I ended up switching my minor my very last year in college because, like, the minor I was in just was not doing it for me. So I was like, oh, shit, I've got to do an entire minor in one year. So I was taking this poetry workshop that was like a three-hour workshop from 6.30 to 9.30 on a Tuesday night, which is when we had to, like, put together the paper. And I had, like, three other classes that day, so I couldn't really get up there and work on it. So I, I would go from that poetry workshop straight to the equinox office so i could put together my section but by that point it was i get up there at about 10 o'clock and by midnight i'd be done yeah and i remember you telling me about that and everybody else would still be there until like one or two because we got very very efficient at doing that job yeah i mean once, once you figure it out once you know the system that you're working on and once you know like your pages and stuff it, it's pretty easy to just kind of like Okay, done. Yeah, it takes a certain brain to do it because it is a puzzle and you just have to be able to look at the page, know what you have and go boom, 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 boom. And not everybody can see the world that way. Yeah. And it takes time, but you know, yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I think that's kind of like covered why we do what we do, our influences, how we got started. Like, I think I think this kind of covers it. Yeah. And it's either why we do what we do or people will listen to that and go, wow, these two are really insane. Yeah. Yeah. People might listen to this and be like, oh, wow. So if you're a journalist, you are diseased in the brain. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a certain kind of insanity to want to do this on a daily basis. Yeah. It's a very, very specific kind of insanity. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so on that note, this is the end of our first season, whatever the hell that means, because we're just going to start season two up next week. Yeah. Just the arbitrary decision we made. Yeah, it's fun. So we're still broke and we're still nerds, and come back and keep listening to us be our nerdy selves. <laughs>